this morning Try to feed my family All I had was 50 cents Not enough to feed my seeds And so I looked in the paper The jobs they had weren't fit for me And so I hit the streets and begged And that is how I make my money Why is life so damn hard? Struggle and strive Um, skeleton crew today, uh, me and Maget here. I was um, sort of tempted to, to title this one um, Beer Detox or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't too sure about that. But anyways, uh, before we get started, just a quick housekeeping. Just wanted to thank you guys, our patrons, uh, for subscribing and helping to support indigenous independent media. Um, if you are interested in becoming a patron <laughs> and supporting the show, uh, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash fanatsu uh, for as little as uh, a dollar a month for the uh, Hatsa program. I know the background is looking kind of bright. Uh, for the hookah program, for as little as 10 bucks a month. Um, and that's like 10 McChickens, or actually like nine, nine McChickens <laughs> a month. Um, you can be a hookah member. And that gives you access to uh, Radical History and the top tier uh, Masmagas uh, members, Imasmagas, um, Tulu members. You guys, for 15 bucks a month, get Radical Readings uh, and Radical History. And you also get an invitation to our, um, our Patreon uh, member chat. And we, I think it's pretty cool. I mean, you guys get to ask questions and really um, get insight into what goes on um, behind the scenes and really weigh in on the topics that uh, we, we talk about on the show. So I think that, that's about it and with that we'll get started. Um, I wanted to talk to you guys today about, uh, Miguel knows this, but my head's been in, in an organizing kind of space. Um, I just finished reading this uh, yesterday, Hegemony How To, A Roadmap for Radicals. Um, and I found it really interesting. Um, personally, like when I got into this, when I got into to activism, right? Um, I wasn't really sure how I would fit in, you know? Um, I didn't know what skills I had that I could lend. And um, it really all began for me um, when I was a, a student at GCC with the, the pocket protests, right? Um, and, you know, I didn't, I didn't have, um, any knowledge of the media, um, and I started signing up as like a volunteer, just like you know, passing out uh, um, sign-up sheets and stuff. You know, at protests, at um, at hikes. Those are really cool. We used to do a lot of hikes uh, through Weir Guahan, um, and it was very minimal, but it was a way for me to contribute. And I don't know. Even back then, like after reading after reading this book by John Smucker, like. Um, Perhaps I would have gotten more uh, in depth. Perhaps I would have been more involved uh, early on if maybe there were um, easier ways for me to to become more involved. Like I think I feel like there was a really big gap between um, just a volunteer uh, lending like two two or three hours of his time, you know, like um, passing out a sign up sheet. Um, there was a really big gap between that, and then I guess the next step would have been like going to a meeting and like, you know, helping to coordinate um, like further outreach or something like that. 
And um, there, there's a lot of examples like in my own um, like personal experience. And then even, even more so now with uh, Independent Guahan, uh, we're always um, activist groups, social movement groups are always faced up against the problem of how do we get more people involved, you know? And uh, Maget definitely has more experience in this. Um, and he knows uh, very well, like, uh, as I was reading this book, um, just like uh, uh, sporadically, like uh, throughout the week, I'd just be messaging him like, what do you think about us doing this? How do we recruit these people? And, um, you know, it's a never-ending problem. But uh, independent Guahan and Guam even, uh, it's, we're not unique in that way. Um, so maybe we can start by sharing some of the, the hard lessons that, that you've learned um, in your, your early days of organizing with Femak Saizen. And then, um, you know, what have you learned so far? I mean, you've been, mm. you've been very involved. Yeah, so my, uh, this, is, this is where I uh, pull out my, my Bihu card. Um, even though, even though I'm, I am not that old and I have not been uh, that involved with so many things, I, I made it an effort though, I made a great effort to talk to the people who are involved. In, in, in a number of different movements. And that happened just because um, it's just actually when I was getting my master's in Micronesian studies and I was interviewing older Chamorros about uh, their experiences before World War II and during World War II, like something fascinated me. And so somehow it just kind of extended then naturally into meeting with activists and talking about activists or talking to them about sort of their struggles and their histories. And a lot of it actually happened and it helped produce my, my first master, my second master's thesis, excuse me, um, where I wouldn't talk about decolonization, but at that time, about 15 years ago or so, every time I would talk to people about certain issues, a lot of Chamorros would instinctively respond by saying that decolonization is, is terrible or scary. So I could be talking to somebody and I would just and I would just be generally talking about tomorrow things and then if they and then somebody would then all of a sudden say, oh, but you know, we boy, we could never take care of ourselves or it's good that uh, the Americans saved us because we would be dead and we could never take care of ourselves. And a lot of it came down to just these feelings of inadequacy, inferiority. And then people started. And then when I would actually talk to people about those ideas, I would have elders basically telling me, oh, decolonization is suicide. You know, you can't be anything. We should be glad to be a territory. And it was just fascinating to hear all of these things because that generation is one where we, we tend to think of the, the war generation as one that was a strong generation, right? That they were people that survived, endured a lot. And so then when you look at them, do you think that they couldn't run an island themselves? So on the one hand, you praise them as footnotes to America's war effort, but if you take them out of the idea of them being extensions or just manifestations of American benevolence, suddenly they're weak and docile, and suddenly they're, they're natives that have to be civilized and so on. And so I encountered this in so many ways, and so it actually pushed me then in, to meet with more people who talked about that, who were talking about that sort of issue, wanting to know about their experiences. And so that's why I met with people who Talk, who were there for the Celebay protests, right. landowner, people in landowners groups uh, who had been protesting and gone to different lawsuits, people who had land taken after World War II and kept the trauma alive, OPIR, Parapada, Nashon Chamorro, 
And so a lot of those things that informed my understanding of how activism had worked on Guam around these issues, and therefore what might work looking into the future. And so um, there's a lot of different there's a lot of different lessons um, that I can that I can bring out from that though. Um, but one of the things which is most fascinating, and we talk about it a lot on Fanatsu, is just how more how much more open the conversation has been around these sorts of things. And a lot of times that can actually make people that have been fighting for something for a long time feel like there's a dilution or feel betrayed in some way. You know, because people who have been pushing for independence before, mm -hmm. but at that point only in a poll, maybe 2% of the population yeah. would say they were in favor of independence. That group then, as it expands and more and more people sort of get intrigued by the idea or either are passionate about it or just not as resistant to it. There, there's so many different ways that you can judge how sort of common sense in a society is being reworked. Mm. And so it's not what people say explicitly. It can also be the things that they no longer resist, the things that they no longer feel like they have to resist. So for example, now, now if you are like a 16-year-old and you talk to your parents about decolonization, they may not shut you down. Yeah. But 20 years ago, they probably would have shut you down. Mm -hmm. 40 years ago, they most certainly would have shut you down. Yeah. And that's why Robert Underwood says, for example, when he was in high school, he may have wanted to talk to people about decolonization and independence as an academic project, but no one took it seriously. And now, he says, every week he finds another young person who's interested in the idea or who is already passionate about the idea. And for me, that's, you know, and going to sort of thinking about the concept of hegemony, all of that has to do with sort of the reworking of hegemonic ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that can only be done through uh, things like symbolic contests and also, um, what's the other word he uses? Oh, institutional contests, right? But in order to have an institutional contest, in order to oppose the, the dominant structure, you need to have a structure yourself. And um, that can only be done through building solidarity with uh, other groups and um, other community members. Um, and I do see the ways where like uh, hegemony in, in a Guam context, right? When we're talking about decolonization, I do see the ways in which uh, hegemony is changing um, in our favor. Uh, one, of my, one of the first clashes I had um, was uh, as, a, as a volunteer with We Are Guahan and really um, trying to dig deeper into these issues uh, was one night at, at the dinner table. I, I think I've talked about this on Fanatsu before, but I mean, um, you know, every night my family uh, meets at my Nana's house, we have dinner, big family. Um, and there was one night where I was like, hey, what do you guys think about that military buildup issue? <laughs> and then um, uh, naturally it, it, it um, escalated into the issue of whether or not the US military should even be here on Guam. And uh, um, my, my family, uh, I have a number of people who are employed by the military. Um, and, you know, so their livelihoods depend on, on the military being here, uh, which for them, it, it's understandable that they were so apprehensive um, to the idea. But um, just, you know, one after the other, just taking shots left and right. Uh, what do you mean the U.S. military shouldn't be here? You know, they're the ones that saved us and blah, 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 all this other shit. Um, and, like, you take that, and that was almost exactly 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. 
And then, you know, with the Magua village uh, protests, you know, now the those same family members are now like, oh, yeah, they definitely shouldn't have done that. That was really bad. Mm-hmm. And I have, um, like, super, like, right-wing uncles who are like, why the hell did they do that? You know, like, there's no respect. I respect to, uh, and, you know, they can, they feel the disparity in their own ways. And now they're, they're more open about expressing it. And it's really, mm-hmm. it's really good to see. Um, and I'm pretty sure, yeah, you've it probably is. seen it. It's, so this is one thing that, um, when, when you're an activist and you have a cause and you have ideas which feel really close to your heart, yeah. which you feel everyone needs to think about and believe in. Like a lot of times what can happen though is that there's a difference between you sort of exercising sort of your ego through passionate speech, but a lot of times then we lose the effectiveness of it, right? So your ego, for example, will tell you that what you believe in is really awesome and everyone should believe it. And so you'll then speak to people in a more sort of either condescending way or in a very combative way, right? Like you need to believe what I believe in because it's so important. And most people... Don't, don't go with them. They get turned off just because it's like your, your ideas are infringing on their, their, self, their self-personhood, right? It's like because they either feel like, oh, I don't know about this already. Don't tell me something that I don't know about or already care about is supposed to be important to me. <laughs> they, may, they may just feel like, like if they're your cousin or something, or you think you're better than me, huh? Mm. Primo, you think you're better than me? But... Um, but sort of thinking about hegemony though, thinking about that as a concept for how you think about social change. It's not about talking to every single person and wearing them down directly. That's, it doesn't really work. Like you're going to go and you're going to fight with every single person on the island until they all believe things, things that you believe. And sometimes the most vocal activists believe that, right? They think that you need to be inspired directly by the things that I say and my appeal to you but, but a lot of that is ego, though, Yeah. right? It's not really, there's no strategy there. It's just that the person feels strongly about what they believe in. But if you take seriously ideas of how opinions are formed in a, in a society, how common sense is formed, then you realize that most people don't respond directly to things. They kind of move hmm. and they flow based on sort of where institutions, debates in institutions are moving things where the media is moving things by current events that are out there, by the, the, by the way that their personal experiences connect with those things. And, you know, Manny, you had an article in the PDN recently which shows clearly how that happens, right? So imagine in not just what people are saying, but what the media also produces yeah. or allows to be produced. Manny just wrote a, had a piece recently in which he talked to a World War II survivor, George Estacquio, who was... Uh, Wampat's chief of staff when he was in D.C., who makes the case that we shouldn't celebrate necessarily a liberation because people in Menengen weren't directly liberated. The Japanese just left one day. You know, after 32 months of brutality, the Japanese just disappeared and Chamorros found their own way out of Menengen. Mm -hmm. And to think then, now when George Estacquio was was 20 years old, do you think he would have said that out loud publicly? He probably wouldn't have. No. When he was 40 years old, would he have said that? When he was was 50 years old and he was working in D.C., would he have said that? No. But what is it now that that he feels 
that it's right, yeah. that it should be said now, and what is it that the PDN, right. a, a, a newspaper, a media sort of institution which, which has a history of being more conservative on mm -hmm. Guam, what does it say then that, that uh, the PDN puts out a story like that? Okay. Yeah. That's a... It's interesting to think about, mm -hmm. especially if you if you've read the PDN for many years and you're familiar with how the PDN used to sort of speak about issues like decolonization and liberation, then it should be almost bewildering. Yeah, you know, with Natman man, it's it's incredible to think about how things shift in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the board is always shifting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we, if, we, if we think about this like. Um, like a board game, right? Like like chess, for instance. I mean, like um, us as uh, political challengers or uh, hopeful political challengers, we always need to uh, readdress um, the our context. Uh, what what's going on politically? What's going on socially? And what what instances are allowing for uh, potential change and a, a potential challenge to hegemony to occur? And I mean, like since you brought up the PDN, I think. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the Trump administration, mm -hmm. as we as we spoke about previously. Um, the center has shifted mm -hmm. dramatically to the right mm -hmm. in an extreme fashion, and so anything that opposes that just is. It just seems like I'm going to use this word again: common sense. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, how can if that is what the right represents. If the right represents, um, you know, the tear gassing of children, of brown children, if it represents uh, the tear gassing of Native Americans and, and denial of indigenous rights at an extreme level, um, then maybe what these guys on the left with uh, with their long hair and their their curly <laughs> beards, maybe the things that these guys are talking about, maybe it's not so bad. So let, let's let's explore that. <laughs> and I think that's what's happening uh, on a mainstream media level. Mm -hmm. You know, so oh yeah, very true. I mean, um, just thinking about my own perspective. Yeah, like when George W. Bush was president, I was not a big fan of George W. Bush at all. But Donald Trump has the ability to make me nostalgic for George W. Bush mm. because that's how things shift. Is that George? Is that Trump is is so extreme in some ways and sort of seems to disrespect so many things which. I personally find important or which the United States relies on politically to exist as a country, that then suddenly you can look at somebody like George W. Bush and think, man, so presidential. Go for president the Azunatauta. But when he was when he was president, I thought of him as a joke. I thought of him as a imperialist, warmongering joke. But yeah, so that's but then Trump comes out, changes the center, and sort of we have we have what we have today. And so we can see that similar things have taken place in Guam, but it's not, it's not necessarily Trump, but it's also, it's not just Trump himself, but it is also the ways in which people have been making arguments mm. for a while. And then eventually sort of the, you know, you make the argument long enough and eventually yeah. you kind of change, change the rules of the game a little bit. I definitely, I definitely also think it's a, it's a material thing. It's an economic thing. Um, like shit's getting pretty bad. For everybody, you know, it's not just the Chamorro thing. Um, it's not even explicitly a Micronesian thing. But I mean, like, um, so many, like, I always go back to this. But the idea that 
um, 80% of Guam DOE students, which reflects uh, to a larger extent um, Guam society in general, right? Um, they're all considered, uh, most of them are considered high poverty. Mm -hmm. And the same can be said of the greater population here. Um, yeah, man, I think, I think those are things that help push people um, to explore mm -hmm. uh, solutions like decolonization. And it's a good thing. It's definitely a good thing. Rather than just uh, simply like casting it off as like, oh, those crazy radicals, you know, <laughs> it's just them again. You know, oh, there's another column in the paper uh, with the same guy um, with, with long hair and shit. Um, he's always going to talk about the same stuff. And it, it's not that, you know, and the fact that more people are exploring it openly is, is awesome, mm -hmm. you know. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, and part of it is that... <laughs> so in some ways when you're when you're trying you know when there's societal change right you can't ever really plan out how it'll go because you don't know all the factors involved right yeah so that's the thing is you may be sort of in your garage like the unabomber thinking you've got the revolutionary formula or something like that and then once you put your message out there no one gives a crap mm. right that that happens all the time um so it isn't necessarily about the message alone but it, of course, it is how your message, your cause, your ideas take advantage of a particular moment, how they um, connect with things that are out there right now. Mm. And that's how sort of then, but, but part of it also, and, and then speaking about issues such as decolonization in particular, right, is that when I was doing my research, um, everyone pretty much thought that decolonization meant independence. And that's one reason why they resisted it, is because they were afraid. Like you say, what about decolonization? They're like, oh, we can't be independent. But they didn't, weren't thinking about independent in a political sense. They were thinking about independent in just the sense that you're on your own. Right. That you rip yourself away from reality. And so just rip yourself away from reality, and that's it. And so, um, but what you do, though, is, interestingly enough, because one of the things that I started doing was because for some people, decolonization is only independence. No. But for me, or that's the true decolonization. Yeah. But for me, you articulate decolonization as one of three options. So therefore, you create an idea which a lot of people can, can find their own way through. Right. But you argue that one of the options is the best fit for the people. Mm -hmm. But you don't deny the other options. Yeah, yeah. You don't pretend they don't exist. You know, so you give people like that there's three options, there's three choices, but this is the one if you believe in Guam, this yeah. is the one that you want. If you want the best for our future, this is the one. If you, what's it called, if you really want to take advantage of where we are in the world and really represent who we are, then this is the one. And if you do that, you move beyond, you know, your usual activist clique and you can start to get people who, you know, who didn't grow up having a radical family history, right? Mm -hmm. Who didn't but but they may be inspired because they may think yeah that's yeah they can find themselves in the conversation and so that's why for example before a lot of a lot of the activists used to argue that decolonization is only independence that's the only real form of decolonization and although part of me understands that and agrees with it at the same time i know that if you're talking to people if you deny the other options you don't win anything with somebody who isn't sure mm -hmm. or doesn't know enough, doesn't know as much as you do. So that's why it's not about vanquishing people that, that believe different things, but it's about, it's yeah. about reorganizing the space for their discussion and their movement of their thoughts 
the formation of discourse and so that they can they can sort of move closer to your side yeah yeah no i mean that, that ties in with something you said earlier about um you know trying to to cast people down with your 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 superior knowledge mm. uh, of a certain idea and that being whether that be like politics or theory whatever um and that, that sort of aligns with something that John Smucker says in that, um, you know, social movements and organizing, it's not a debate club. Like, you can't mm -hmm. win people over by, you know, trying to reprimand them for thinking differently mm -hmm. or that, that's not how you gain support. Um, and especially when we're talking about, like, different, different communities here on Guam, um, not just, like, ethnic communities, uh, but different interest groups. Like, uh, we talked a little bit about the church because um, I'm working on another article for Beyond Liberation um, dealing with uh, December 8th, Santa Maria Kamalin. And I, I totally understand that um, Santa Maria Kamalin has cultural significance. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess where I was coming from yesterday was the fact that, um, like, whether it would still be relevant, religion in general, would it still be relevant in the next like 12 years or so, you know? And, but I definitely think that it is important to, you know, if we were trying to cater to like the Catholic community, right? Um, using, using symbols like Santa Maria Kamalin as, um, as a galvanizing force, mm -hmm. um, a reminder of uh, Guam's unique identity and the, the pride that we should have as a people, um, to pursue uh, sovereignty, mm. you know. I mean, to your point, you should always remember that many of the right, the sort of the, the resurgence of right-wing sort of conservative nationalist governments and movements around the world is tied to the idea that they're, the perception that leftists don't care about your culture, mm. they don't care about that they find you to be in, they find you to be provincial, you're low class because you believe in your culture, your religion, you take those things so seriously. Yeah. And so a lot of them is, it's a reaction then against quote unquote elites, right? So that's why you have to be careful in that right. sort of, because the last, you know, the last thing that you would want is to sort of give off that impression because, you know, culture is important, but culture changes, right? So that's why I would, I would argue that even if in culture is part of religion, culture nowadays has has a lot to do with like your your phone. <laughs> like yeah. but the thing is that that people will are can still be reached through references to the nostalgic culture, the idea of traditional culture, like those things being undermined and threatened. And so if you think about it, the fact that people in your family feel upset because of the desecration of Lati on base, it is part of that idea of culture, right? That our traditions are not being respected. Mm -hmm. That sort of the powerful military on the island is taking advantage of us, that they're, dis they're dismissing and disrespecting us. What to us is our history, them, is just stones that yeah. they can put in a warehouse, right? So that's where we intersect with Harau. They treat our history like fables and fiction. Yeah. They treat our history like like stones and pebbles. I see. And so, but so, but so that's why culture is 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 always important. But it changes. It changes. I mean, um, what's it called? If you were to, if you really wanted to make a lot of people angry, attack things dealing with internet access oh, or on Guam electricity, air yeah. conditioning, like 
So that's the thing is that these are not the things that we think of explicitly as our quote-unquote culture, uh -huh. but these are tied to the way that we exist in the world. Mm. And so who would have thought that, that like 20 years ago, people would spend so much time on these things? Right, right. Like you, you really wouldn't have imagined it, but no few people will say that their phone is part of their culture, but it is a huge part of modern culture. Yeah. That idea of messaging and posting. I mean, I still... When I was young, like people didn't take pictures at funerals. Everybody takes pictures at funerals now. Mm. Like a lot of people do. And it's weird. It's weird, man. People I don't... take selfies in the line, in the line when you're saying hi to the family, right? Yeah. Now, but that's part of the change. Uh -huh. It's part of the change in culture. And so culture is not something, you know, so for a long time, Marxists and communists believed that culture got in the way yeah. of consciousness. It's not true. Culture is a way that you can reach people, um, but there's always going to be some, some part of it there, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why, for example, if, if you're thinking about Catholicism losing its influence on people, it would be replaced with something else. Mm -hmm. There would still be culture as a glue to hold people together, yeah. to give ideas meaning, but it may not be Catholicism. Yeah. And so, um, but yeah, I think for independent Guahan, for example, we, we use culture in certain ways, um, you know, pretty effectively. Yeah. To say that we're not a group which, uh, even if we take on something which used to be considered to be very disrespectful, you know, we do it in respectful ways. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we, we talk about the language, the culture, sustainability, and all these sorts of things. Um, and I think, I think it's effective. Yeah. I think, um, I'll just, just sort of like to, to summarize. I mean, like, this is a really good book. I, I love it. Um, I'm going to read it again. Oh, hold on. I'm getting a call. <laughs> so, sorry. Eddie <laughs> Teluhu. Hello, um, I really love this book. I would read it again for sure um, as I as I start my dissertation uh, in February. Um, but really, to to wrap it up for you guys, um, what's missing, he says, is is community, a sense of belonging, a sense of community. Um, in, in late capitalism, we've we've all been like divided. Um, you know, there there is a, there is a, a greater emphasis on individuality, on individualism, and people are missing community and we recreate communities, uh, whether that be, and just as a quick aside, please, um, if you are a Pokemon Go player <laughs> and you, you're playing uh, from your car and you're driving around Hagunya at five miles an hour, <laughs> Please, uh, for public safety and also for uh, my convenience. Um, it's not cool. Please stop playing Pokemon Go from your cars uh, as you circle around Guam Museum, right? But I mean, like, so we recreate communities um, because we're, we're human. We need community. We need, we need belonging. Um, and so that's what's missing. And how do we, how can we do that as a, a social movement organization, as independent Guahan, as Putehi Latexan, um, even thinking more nationally as like Black Lives Matter? How is Black Lives Matter able to, to recruit the, the, um, the interests of different social blocks, right? And how can we do that in a Pacific Island setting? And it's not by pushing people away through um, academic debate. Um, it's by... Um, 
by talking to people, mm -hmm. like you said, like um, you talking to people who participate in other groups, uh, other other demographics, talking to Manumku, talking to uh, uh, teenagers, um, talking to religious uh, leaders and stuff. Um, I don't know if you've done that personally, like religious leaders. I've talked or about decolonization or anything like just just yeah. finding out what what concerns people, mm -hmm. you know, what interests people, and how how can we show that. Um, what we try to do on our side is uh, is aligned with what they want to do. Um, if they don't feel like the church has enough sovereignty, well, how does that relate to um, to decolonization? And um, you know, where where is the where's the common ground? Mm. Finding the common ground and creating a sense of community. Oh hell yeah! I mean, there is always, of course, the risk though that the more people gravitate to an idea. The if you are if you were there at ground zero when the idea was kind of put forth, you're gonna have to compromise. Right. Like right. that's always that's always part of the issue is that is that if you promote it's oftentimes if you promote the idea enough and you get it out there enough and then the message will be altered, you will alter it, mm -hmm. other people will alter it, and other people will become connected to it. Yeah. Um, beyond even what you think. So that's why, for example, like um, independent Guahan, we reached a certain sort of plateau this election. Yeah. Because, like, I we used to be able to count the the candidates for elected office, you know, on our fingers or less who supported independence. Mm. It wasn't a lot, and we tended to know them really well. This election and a little bit in the last election. There was candidates who were talking about independence, and we didn't have any real direct connection to them. Yeah, and it's because the idea was out there, is floating around, and more and more people are kind of feeling connected to it, or feeling that there's some vitality to it. There's something interesting about it, and so they can they can sort of latch onto it as well. And then, but then, of course, you but people will take it and run with it, right? And that's where, but you have to understand that you can only control the idea to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, because you think about it, the fact that, let's say, 25-20% of the people in the United States did not believe that Barack Obama was born in Hawaii, that they thought that he was born in Kenya. Yeah. 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 There's, there's always, you can't control anything out there mm -hmm. because, um, but you can sort of work your message and build your capacity certain to a certain way to try to get it out there yeah. um, in ways that, that are effective. But that's why with independence as an idea right now, for example, you could have somebody who articulates it in a very progressive way. You could have somebody who articulates it in a really conservative way. Mm. And yeah, yeah. you gain something by leaving it open for that. But at some point, though, you... It has to. It has to become more concrete. Yeah. So I guess the other thing that that Smucker talks about is on on the other hand of like on the other side of like a group of people who need community. Um, the tendency that a lot of uh, left leftist groups uh, tend to fall in is the fact that there are people in there who who join um, purely for the sense of community. They're in it to, to be with other people who, who think the things that they think and, um, who value the same things that they value. And there, there isn't a mind towards, um, towards strategy. Like, it's great that you guys have built this community, um, but now 
how do we translate that into actual politics? Mm. How do we, yeah, and he, he calls it a prefigurative politics. So you join this group, uh, you're, in a, in a, you're in a core group of like a handful of people, you guys show up uh, week after week, you, de- you guys dedicate like three to four hours, uh, um, three to four hours a week of your time. Um, but for what, for what purpose, you know? Um, and I, I sort of fall, have fallen into that trap in the past as well. Uh, when we've talked about um, things like uh, a community garden, for instance, uh, which isn't necessarily bad, but it's, it's, it is a form of prefigurative politics if there isn't um, a strategic purpose for it. Like how, how does it benefit independent Guahan? How does it benefit the people of Guam? And how does that drive us uh, forward towards um, you know, challenging hegemony and becoming hegemonic, hegemonic in a good way? That's true. Yeah. There is always something to that. Uh, there's never any shortage of ideas. Right. Right? That's, and that's one of the, 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 the problems with a lot of community organizing groups is that, is that sort of people come together wanting to change the world or change the world in some way, but then, <clears throat> but then, you know, trying to figure out what's the best way. And then what makes you excited may not, and I'm looking at you, Manny, <laughs> it may not it may not be the most strategic or the best mm, way, yeah. right? So that's why, because, and so for example, I feel like Guam shares similarities with a lot of contexts, his, other sort of community, historical, uh, national decolonial contexts. But you always have to think, if, it, if somebody's doing it here, you know, yeah. do we need to do it here? Would it make sense? You know, so, yeah. and then... Um, but yeah, so that's there's always there's always that issue because people will always have lots of ideas, but taking into account that you do, if you don't have billionaires backing your movements, yeah, if you don't all have uh, jobs where you can put in the time to do whatever you want, you know, mm-hmm. if you're not all independently wealthy, yeah, yeah, then it becomes this issue. Well, am I going to sustain myself off of great ideas, which we mm-hmm. may not ever be able to do? Uh, but that's hard because those ideas, though like nourish us in certain ways mm-hmm. being excited about doing great things in the community but a lot of times and I and I hate a lot of that too like a lot of times it's calling people talking to people yeah and then uh, trying to get them to come up to come out to connect to others a lot of times it is just sort of meetings and sort of the, the drudgery of it um, so I don't know some it's hard to find those balances yeah yeah because you want those, for, for the activists themselves, you want new exciting things to do to keep yourself inspired, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, yeah, that's why, for me, whenever we come up with sort of a, a new cool idea, I'm always like, man, it's going yeah. to be sure. you're, you're totally right. <laughs> it, is, it, it has a lot to do with actual capacity. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one of the things that Paulo Freire uh, says, which, which uh, Smucker quotes in the book, is um, what can we do now to do... <laughs> I'm going to fuck this up so bad. <laughs> what can we do today uh, to be able to do tomorrow what we can't mm-hmm. do now, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, so... Yeah, maybe maybe now isn't the best time to build a to have a, a community garden sponsored by a mayor's office or something. But how can we get to a point where later on down the road we have the community support to do that? Yes. And you know, yes. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, actual capacities. And that's something that I struggle with uh, always keeping in mind because, um, as you said, there's no shortage of great ideas. There's all these things that we, we want to do intrinsically, um, which is a reason why we get involved with uh, social movements in the first place is because we want to change things, right? True. Social movements always look bigger or smaller than they really are. Yeah. So a social movement, which could be like a couple people in an office, can appear to be super powerful in the right light. And then the social movements, which are quite large, can appear to be weak and ineffectual from a certain perspective. And that's the thing, is that um, part of that is, is, is your control over your capacity and your, and your manipulation of the perceptions of others, mm -hmm. you know, to give, your, to give yourself a larger sense of, of power and presence. Every activist group wants that. You want to be a player. You want it so that people take you and your ideas seriously. And so what comes from that, though, is then you have to kind of use the networks that are out there to sort of, but, you know, you may not actually have the capacity to, yeah. to do a lot of things. So what are the things that you can do to either increase your capacity or make it appear like you are larger than you really are? Yeah. Or you have a larger presence than you really are, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, just sort of to, to wrap it all up because we're heading into our, our 45 minute mark but I mean like one of the most effective ways to do that um, apparently in some contexts at least is through one-on-one -on -one meetings mm -hmm. with people um, every every general assembly independent Guahan has a, a, a sign-up sheet right and um, there's a there's a checkbox there um, are you interested in volunteering yes or no and if you click yes um, then Ideally, there should be someone to, to get back to you um, and to see how you guys can work things out. But um, I, I guess the, the guy Smucker, um, in some of the groups that he's worked with, it's been most effective to actually um, talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, sit down, have a coffee. And I guess on that note, too, like um, if any of you watching this, uh, maybe, you, maybe you don't have the funds to become a patron. Hopefully you do, the five of you that are watching live right now. But I mean, like, let maybe... Maybe you're like me. Maybe you don't have the opportunity to be a patron, right? Um, if you're, if you're, if you want to make a difference, if you feel like uh, you have something to add, or maybe you want to learn more about what you can do to make a difference uh, with Independent Guahan, um, then please, by all means, message us on Fanatsu. Message Independent Guahan. Uh, it's usually either me or Maget, uh responding to the messages anyway. Um, let's talk. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um... Because we're, so next month, it's the, it's the start of a new term for governor of Guam. Oh, we yeah. have a new Magahonga, we have a whole new legislature. And so this could be a time of, of very positive change um, for this island. And so it's important that sort of those of us that want to see, you know, a more progressive Guam, a Guam which takes seriously the, the promotion of our culture, um, that takes seriously the preservation of the Chamorro language, that takes Chamorro rights seriously, that wants to protect our environment, mm. protect our historic and cultural resources, but also, and wants to promote sustainability. Yeah. Like, this is the time. And Guam is a small enough place that five people can really, like five people, ten people for sure, who kind of put their capacity, who put their, their minetgut in a latte, who put it all together can definitely change. Mm. They can be the huge difference between 
getting sort of a, a some real recycling legislation passed on this island, yeah, or some or really push historic preservation, um, you know, really put some teeth into the laws around the protection of our of our historic artifacts, yeah, you know, that's all we got to do. But your average and your average democracy, your average leader doesn't really care about those things. Mm -hmm. You know, they 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 only what's it called? <clears throat> what is it? Your average democratic leader, and I mean in a leader in a democracy, will, will have just enough candy to make you happy enough to vote for them again. But they're not going to give away the whole store. Yeah. They're going to give you just enough, like trick or treat, just to, to make it so that you'll, you'll, you'll mark their, 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 their oval again in two years. But they're not actually going to do a lot unless they feel like people want them to. And it's required. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, that's what we've seen. <laughs> That's what we've seen over the past two elections. People got upset about the pay raises. And so then suddenly people that voted for the pay raises, they're out. Yeah. We saw people being upset about sort of the course of the island. They, they don't want, you know, they, they want some real resistance on the buildup. Yeah. They want protection of the environment and culture. And so they elect a bunch of people, you know, who are strong on those issues. And so the more of us that that put that, that pressure out there, that, that sort of speak with that type of voice, you know, the, the more impact we can have. Right, right. So it's, again, the idea that power doesn't give up anything unless they're forced to, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, cool. Oh, and by the way, I'm, I know we're, we're coming up short on time now, but um, I've noticed uh, as I'm peering over at, um, at Maget's screen that there is a significant height difference uh, and, uh, so, and, you know, coincidentally, um, I do have a giveaway prize and I guess the first person who can Photoshop us as, uh, Gandalf and, um, and Frodo or any other, uh, <laughs> Sunukan duo, um, you, you get a free giveaway <laughs> prize, uh, courtesy of Fanatsu. So, <laughs> yeah, so that's it for us. Um, we're going to take care of the fun half now. Uh, we're going to, uh, take care of some radical readings, radical history and, uh, Cesus Masi, thank you for watching. Patreon.com slash Fanatsu. Yeah, if you want to, if you are speaking of Gandalf and, and Frodo, or Gandalf and Bilbo, depending on what generation you prefer, yeah. <laughs> sign up as a patron, and then, because I'll be talking about Wom's historical Gandalf and Frodo, mm. two historical figures who were known for being very different, d very different in terms of their height. And so only those who have uh, Hugwa level status Patrons get to hear the story. Yeah. That's it. Adios. Sisus Masi. Sisus Masi. Tell me why we live this way My kids are suffering cause we live on the streets All because we couldn't get that government cheese, yeah Some say we're prisoners Living in a world of politics Needless to say they put up the gates Try to keep the people out and they'll have it their way, yeah Why is life?